Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, W.C. Fields. Now let's get started with our story about W.C. Fields. Although he spent most of his film career depicting drunks, misanthropes, and generally dysfunctional shirkers who seemed as if they would be much happier living alone in a cave, W.C. Fields succeeded in Hollywood after decades of perfecting his craft in vaudeville, theater, and silent film. Fields was an integral part of the golden age of American movie comedy and created a singular, instantly recognizable persona that transcended the bleakness of the Great Depression. But underneath the frivolity was a domestic life fraught with turmoil and an emotionally isolated individual who kept people at a distance. And, unfortunately, while his supposed dislike of dogs and children was a carefully nurtured public relations facade, his fondness for alcohol was genuine, with intake averaging two-quart bottles a day, an addiction that would curtail his career and ultimately kill him. W.C. Fields was born William Claude Dukenfield on January 29, 1880, in Darby, Pennsylvania. His parents, James and Kate, were English immigrants of modest means, his mother a homemaker, and his father, appropriately enough, at the time of his son's birth, an innkeeper and bartender. Eventually, Jim Dukenfield would enter the retail fruit business, selling produce from a horse-drawn cart. He would also bring along his eldest son, who was known by his middle name, Claude, to help out with the marketing, something that Fields quickly grew to detest. Typically, neither Claude or his second oldest brother, Walter, would get much education, Fields himself making it only through the fourth grade. In lower-middle-class 19th-century America, teenagers would work to support the household. If nothing else, the 12-year-old began to amuse himself by learning to juggle the various fruits and vegetables he handled daily, an art form he would eventually put to good use. Unfortunately, much of the lore about Fields' childhood was spun by Hollywood press agents and early biographies that relied on many of the apocryphal fables that Fields invented. However, there is no doubt that his family life was quite dysfunctional, with Fields frequently running away from home for protracted periods, starting at the age of nine. His father was emotionally cold and physically abusive, and his relationship with his son was always hostile and antagonistic. Claude was eventually taken in by his maternal grandmother, who loathed Jim Dukenfield and put up her grandson out of spite alone. Fields would spend the rest of his teenage years in a series of dead-end, low-paying jobs like clerking in a department store or working as a cigar shop stock boy. To entertain himself, he would occasionally frequent the numerous vaudeville houses that became a craze in Philadelphia during the late 19th century. 
It was here that Fields first observed the many jugglers that were a cornerstone of the vaudeville experience. He immediately began to put together his own juggling routine, but unfortunately his grandmother became enraged when she discovered what he was up to and made it clear that she wouldn't tolerate her grandson wasting time on such a dishonorable profession. Fields was making $4 a week working on an ice wagon, so his grandmother's admonition only forced him to practice his carnival antics in secret. Because he couldn't practice at home, Claude took to performing tricks and routines in local saloons that he frequented while eating lunch during his ice wagon day job. He would not appear in any formal capacity until he was 17 years old, first appearing with the stage name of W.C. Fields, merely a use of initials and a snappier shortening of his surname, on March 11, 1898. Fields was actually able to procure a manager, a local huckster named Bill Daly, but gigs were few and far between, and it is clear that Fields endured through street hustles and borderline petty crime to literally survive. W.C. no longer had the ice wagon job. He was fired for missing too many days after late-night bookings kept him in bed long after he should have been at work. He and his manager soon realized that if he was going to get anywhere in show business, he needed to be in New York. Fields scraped together some money, relocated, and made the rounds of the numerous New York agents and bookers that funneled entertainers to the hundreds of venues around the city. But without any references or solid experience, this venture was doomed from the outset. Fields quickly ran out of cash and had no choice but to return home, the only tangible result of his brief move, a lifelong loathing of Philadelphia, which, after his exposure to the bustling sophistication of Manhattan, struck him as backward and dull. But with no other options, he gratefully accepted a one-week booking at the Plymouth Casino arranged by Daly, who took 20% of the $5 payment. Fields was so poor that he spent the first nights in the casino men's room, and after that was prohibited, he repaired to a nearby barn. His less-than-impressive act lasted the week, but Fields made some contacts who landed him work in another venue in Atlantic City. Fortescue's Pavilion was a typical boardwalk emporium that sold food and beer and kept customers entertained with various acts, including comics, musicians, and jugglers. Years later, Fields claimed that if the place was busy, he would perform his juggling act as many as 20 times a day, and if not, he or some other performer would don swim trunks, head out into the water, and feign drowning, only to be dragged into the pavilion, curious onlookers following inside to check on his condition. Another act would start performing, and with attention diverted, fields would miraculously recover and slip into the recesses of the building. From this two-week appearance, Field was able to secure a position with an actual touring vaudeville troupe entitled the Monte Carlo Girls that appeared in locales like Troy, New York, and Lawrence, Massachusetts. This show was a typical presentation featuring attractive women in various dance numbers complemented by entertainers like Fields. He was supposed to be paid $25 a week, but, predictably, the burlesque manager bailed midway through the tour without paying much of anybody's salaries. Fields found himself back in New York at Square One. However, his time on the burlesque circuit was not a total loss. He met and began courting Harriet Hughes, an attractive member of the Monte Carlo Girls. For Fields, this was his first serious relationship, and Harriet was an extremely attractive woman two years older than he was. He spent whatever free time he had from performing at tiny venues with Harriet, even accompanying her to church, an indication of how seriously he felt about her. Fields' disdain for all organized religion, even at a young age, was a definite problem, as Harriet was a devout Catholic. 
Once again, the same manager of the Monte Carlo girls, James Fulton, enticed many of the same performers to sign on again for a Northeastern spring and summer tour. Once again, he bailed in Reading, Pennsylvania. Harriet, who Fields nicknamed Hattie, returned to New York. Fields stayed first in Philly and then Atlantic City. Eventually, Harriet and a friend came down and landed work at another showplace. In the summer of 1899, Fields would step his career up a notch and join Irwin's Burlesquers, a show that toured major cities of the Midwest and Northeast, his salary eventually reaching $50 a week. He was also sending $10 a week to his once skeptical but now adoring mother. Impresarios and producers were constantly looking for talent, and Fields was spotted while on tour with Irwin's by Martin Beck, who operated the prestigious Orpheum Circuit of Theaters. Fields was offered a spot with Orpheum and negotiated a weekly salary of $125 and took a train to San Francisco for his first appearance in March of 1890. He told Hattie that if everything went well, he would send for her and they would marry. Legally, at age 20, Fields was too young, but he added a year and his wife subtracted one year to even things out. The Orpheum circuit meant three weeks in San Francisco, followed by a week in Los Angeles, Denver, Kansas City, and Omaha. The engagement would eventually end, but not before Fields and his wife got a look at Los Angeles and the gentle climate that made them resolve to figure out how to return permanently. Fields returned to New York, and his stature increased enough for him to be booked by a German agent for an appearance in Berlin on New Year's Day, 1901. Incorporating his wife into the act, Fields set sail and appeared at the Winter Garden. As his juggling did not involve speaking, his act was completely intelligible, and despite some jitters and mistakes, Fields' comedic timing made it seem as if the errors he made were intentional. His European tour was wildly successful, and he played such prestigious venues as the Palace Theatre in London and the Folie Bergère, where he performed for two months. His reviews were impressive enough to land him another 36 months on the Orpheum circuit at $175 a week. What exactly did Fields do during his act? Juggling was the fundamental thread that ran through his performances. He would typically start with three small circular objects and quickly increase that number to six, effortlessly shifting the objects and bouncing them off of his hands and feet until finally depositing them one by one in a back pocket. Next, two hats, which he would launch, one onto his head, the other perched on the tip of his shoe, quickly tossing them back and forth. Then he took a cigar from his coat, a whisk from his pants pocket, and suddenly he was juggling hat, cigar, and broom, with the other hat on his toe, until he ended by directing the hat back on his head, the cigar into his mouth, and the broom into his pocket. Simple, but effective. Unfortunately, Fields' latest Orpheum tour did not go well, chiefly because he felt he didn't get the same response as he had gotten in Europe, and he was constantly and sometimes savagely at odds with his wife, who was growing tired of life on the road. Fields thought a return to Europe might solve his problems, but he began to question how far he could really go as a mere juggler, and his anxiety affected his performance. He had what would be a momentary setback in Vienna when his contract was bought out, and he found himself stranded. This involuntary time off forced him to reinvent himself and his act. What Fields came up with was typically original, although supported by customized props involving pool cues and a pool table. Most of the entire sequence involved sight gags and slapstick utilizing warped cue sticks, trick shots that bounced off of his forehead and other parts of his body, and random juggling, indicating comically that he was the worst pool player on the planet. 
This led up to a finale in which, thus far unable to even hit the cue ball at all, Fields suddenly hit it squarely and simultaneously cleared the entire rack of balls successfully into the table's pockets. Audiences would first gasp in astonishment and then burst into spontaneous applause. Little did they know that the table was rigged with a spring that activated twine attached to the pool balls, essentially yanking them spectacularly off of the pool table. Fields would incorporate some of his old juggling tricks into his new act, which was critically acclaimed and successful enough to generate an invitation to tour Australia. Hattie wanted no part of such a trip, so Fields was accompanied by his brother, Walter. Arriving in June of 1903, Fields would eventually talk his wife into performing with him, and after five months, Fields was acclaimed as one of the most popular acts ever booked in Australia. From there, it was on to South Africa, and eventually London, where he would co-star at the London Hippodrome with Harry Houdini. By the time they hit England, Harriet was not only homesick, she was five months pregnant. Determined to have her child on American soil, she finally returned to the U.S. alone and moved in with her mother in New York, her husband committed to contractual appearances throughout Britain. Walter Fields returned home in June, so W.C. was all by himself when he received a telegram informing him of the birth of his son on July 28, 1904. He was named William C. Dukenfield, but would be referred to as Claude, a development that would have ramifications much later during Fields' film career. It would take some cajoling, but the proud father would eventually convince Hattie to bring not only her newborn son, but her father-in-law over to Europe for an extended tour of England and France. His father-in-law only lasted a few months, but it would be July of 1905, two years after he left the U.S., that W.C. Fields returned to the United States. He was motivated by a part in a musical play called The Ham Tree, the first time he would ever play a traditional theatrical character on stage. The play was a hit, but a subsequent tour again caused unhappiness in the Fields household. Hattie, having grown comfortable with the sedentary life in New York during the play's run there, refused to go back on the road and live out of a suitcase, especially as this would necessitate bringing their son with them. This seems to have caused a permanent schism in the marriage, as Fields spent the winter on the road and did not see his wife and child again until summertime. His salary of $275 a week was something he was not about to forego, and the constant written harangues from his wife to quit show business and settle down only added to his hostility. After a brief, intense reunion with Hattie in Philadelphia, Fields packed up his tricked pool table and spent the rest of the summer on the circuit until the ham tree started its second year on the road. By this time, W.C. was openly traveling with another woman. Initially, Hattie attempted several times to patch things up, but eventually she responded to Fields' refusal to reconciliate by moving to California and bringing Claude with her. In April of 1913, Fields was dealt another domestic blow when his father, by then a frail pensioner, passed away. In his old age, Jim Dukenfield had become immensely proud of his son and his success, and W.C. enthusiastically attended his funeral, a far cry from the defiant enmity of years ago. Fields would continue touring and hit the pinnacle of vaudeville by being added to the 1915 version of the legendary Ziegfeld's Follies. With the increasing profile of the silent film industry, W.C.'s pool routine would make a natural conversion to moving pictures. Pool Sharks would be his 1915 film debut, a thin plot revolving around two men vying for a girl. It contained a child adversary and Fields' affinity for alcohol, two themes that would be repeated throughout his career. His Lordship's Dilemma would quickly follow, an utterly forgettable film that is lost to history. It would be a decade before Fields returned to the screen. Hattie Fields returned to New York to take care of her mother after a debilitating stroke. 
Although her physical proximity to her estranged husband might have improved the relationship with W.C. and his son, the bitterness between the two prevented that from happening. Although Fields' relationship with Florenz Ziegfeld would also be contentious, he would continue to tour with the Follies until 1922. He would also meet his longtime companion, Bessie Poole, who would give birth to his second child. However, this son would be given up for adoption, neither parent wanting to give up show business to raise the child. Because Fields no longer required sobriety and dexterity to perform his Follies' roles, which were theatrical and did not involve juggling, he began to drink heavily to deal with the boredom that was a typical part of the vaudeville life. With prohibition, alcohol also took on a glamorous tinge that made its consumption a trendy pastime. Ziegfeld and Fields would part ways after six years, but by then W.C. had developed numerous sketches of theatrical comedy that allowed a transition to other endeavors. He was cast on the 1923 Broadway play Poppy, a musical comedy in which he played Professor Eustace McGargle, a con man and a character that was the genesis for the recognizable personality that Fields would reprise throughout his career. The production was a tremendous success, and he became the toast of Broadway, as Poppy would run for almost a year until the end of June 1924. Phil Goodman, the producer of the play, also ran in some exclusive literary circles and introduced his star to such literary giants as Theodore Dreiser and H.L. Mencken. Unfortunately, this newfound stature affected Fields' relationship with Bessie Poole, who began to look rather ordinary and who also had nothing to do with his life in the theater. He ended their romance, giving her some money and encouraging her to meet someone and settle down. She never did, dying on October 8, 1928, at age 33, after complications from a barroom brawl precipitated a heart attack, also brought on by excessive drinking. By then, she had signed off on a cash payment of $20,000 to renounce any claim to paternity of her son by Fields, a fiction that he maintained after her death. Fields returned to motion pictures in a Marion Davies vehicle produced by William Randolph Hearst. He had a brief role in this forgettable film, notable only for the astronomical sums spent on it by Hearst. Next, a screen version of the Broadway hit Poppy, retitled Sally of the Sawdust, a hit directed by D.W. Griffith, followed by a brief return to the stage in another rendition of the Ziegfeld Follies in 1925. It was during this time period in July that Fields got word that his mother had died at the age of 71. He returned to Pennsylvania and handled the funeral arrangements, burying her next to his father and other relatives. Although Fields grew sentimental about his parents during his adult life, his relationship with his ex-wife Hattie would still remain bitter and contentious, especially when his son Claude would pester him in the same manner as Hattie, demanding money and complaining of the difficulty of his upbringing. W.C. would respond by remonstrating Hattie for poisoning his son's mind and her sense of entitlement, but he did continue to send money, frequently with a tierce one-sentence greeting. Still, he had very little contact with his son as the boy grew into his 20s. 1926 saw Fields signing an extended contract with Paramount Pictures for five years for three pictures a year at $4,000 a week. The deal would be challenged in court by both Florenz Ziegfeld and Phil Goodman, but eventually Fields was able to legally get on with the lengthy assignment. In succession, he would release It's the Old Army Game, So's Your Old Man, The Potters, and Running Wild, four pictures made on Long Island. 
but Paramount was engulfed in a power struggle in which West Coast head of operations BP Ben Schulberg wanted to combine all production in Los Angeles. This forced Fields to move to the West Coast, eventually settling in the Whitley Heights area. He would appear in Two Flaming Youths, notable only for a stunt accident that broke Fields' back and almost killed him. His next two films, Tilly's Punctured Romance and Fools for Luck, were so poorly received that Paramount declined to pick up Fields' option, and suddenly his film career was at a standstill. Fields had to console himself with another stage gig with Earl Carroll's Vanities, a poor copy of Ziegfeld's Follies, but at $5,200 a week, he had no choice but to sign on. He would carry the show, but New York critics were not enthusiastic, and it was not successful and closed after 25 weeks. Fields had an assortment of other vaudeville or theatrical gigs that culminated with an appearance in Arthur Hammerstein's musical review, Ballyhoo, the worst flop of Fields' career. Suddenly, the reality of the Depression in 1931 sunk in. Ballyhoo essentially killed Fields' theatrical future, and no offers were forthcoming from Hollywood. He was fortunate in that, unlike many of his contemporaries, he did not invest much in the stock market, and most of his assets were in cash. With not much in the way of options, he resolved to pack up and leave New York and head to Los Angeles. On the way out of town, in his Lincoln touring car, he turned back for a look at the skyline, thinking that he might not ever be back. He was 51 years old. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about W.C. Fields. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books W.C. Fields, a biography by James Curtis, W.C. Fields by himself with commentary by Ronald Fields, and W.C. Fields, a life on film by Ronald J. Fields. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <laughs>